Hi, and welcome to this podcast, which is part of the BRICS Gather St Anne's project. Gather St Anne's explores the histories of St Anne's House and the surrounding area with young people, artists, local residents, tenants and community groups. The big advantage for living around here is that people are very friendly. Bristolians are super friendly. Histories to myths, memories to hopes. The collaboration brings people together and shares local voices in St Anne's, Bristol. We just didn't understand why they were watching us in the street. And it's because we were the first black family on the road. The following collection of stories is made up of contributions from local residents aged from under 10 to over 90. Most of the material was gathered from public events at St Anne's House, organised by Bricks, towards the end of 2021. And we found out that the bottom of our garden was like a pilgrim's path that went all the way up to um, a famous shrine at the time. There are also some restored archive recordings helpfully provided by MSHED from their industrial and maritime history collection. The original tapes contain interviews with people who worked at various places around Bristol and were recorded between 1986 and 1988 as part of Bristol Industrial Museum's Bristol at Work project. The segments you'll hear feature the voices of those who worked at St Anne's board mill, which produced cardboard and operated just a stone's throw from the current St Anne's house location. You'll hear first-hand accounts of working conditions and manufacturing processes in the mill during its operation between 1913 and 1980. This podcast was made possible by the National Lottery Heritage Fund. So, Mrs Knowles, when did you start work? 1945. And where was that? Where? Mm. St. Anne's Board Mill, in the laboratory. In the laboratory. What Mm -hmm. what did that involve? Um, Making up test sheets from the pulp that came in. Mm. Um, Testing coal stacks, Mm. taking temperatures on coal stacks. Testing the coal for what power it was Mm. going to give out. And that was five days a week, was it? Five day, no, five and a half days oh, a week. Oh. Yeah, we just go in Saturday mornings. And what hours was that? Then um, quarter to nine till quarter to five, and I think it was nine till twelve on a Saturday morning. Mm. What were the holidays? I think we started at, with two weeks holiday, but mm. I think when I started there, the men in the mill were only getting one week's holiday. Mm. I believe that's, I'm right in saying that. Mm. Was it many men or women doing your the sort of job? In the laboratory? Mm. Well, I was told there was two of us ladies started there when I started, and we were the first ladies to go into the laboratory. Mm. Um, no other females had been in there before. It had always been a male domain. Mm. And Dr. Dean, who was our boss then, lo- lovely man, he'd been there all his life. He thought it was you know, a great joke for two young girls to start mm. Mm. in the laboratory. Sorry, when did you leave the first time? I started in 45, and I think I stayed there 11 years, from the time I was 16, 11 years. And you had no choice to leave when you got married? uh, No, 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 I I didn't have to, I only left because I was expecting a family. No, I I was able to stay on. But at one time, um, I think they did pass something that Mm. girls had to leave when they got married. Penny is my mother-in-law and she used to live in the house that I live in now. <laughs> so um, in Work and Crescent, she lived there, you lived there with your mum I and lived dad. there with my mum until I got married. Mm. And then my mother lived there obviously on her own till 
um, she moved into a home. And then my son bought the house and then married Cheryl and moved in. <laughs> I think my mother bought it just after the war. So when did the war? In 1945. Mm -hmm. And she bought it just before my dad came back from the war. So 44, something like that. You can remember what it was like in a house of the 50s. I mean, admittedly, we had an inside bathroom, which apparently is quite rare in the 50s, but we did. We had coal fires and proper fireplace with a little thing to put your kettle on and that, and toast bread until the chimney caught fire, and then we had to have a proper fireplace. And we had a gas boiler for the washing, washing clothes with a handle thing, a swisher and a mangle. We had chickens in the back garden. And then when I was little, we used to come down across the playing fields at the back, down into the woods to go fishing, gone all day on our own. I've got a daughter as well now, so we've got the next generation who's uh, growing up in the same room that Penny was brought up yeah. in. So her bedroom was my bedroom. Yeah, so it's quite a nice story. I, mm. you know, my daughter likes to hear about, you know, Grandma Penny living there and and Grandma Nora and the sort of history of the family. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, we do sort of like to keep it, you know, obviously yeah. we've modernised it and everything, but mm. it's nice to feel like there's that history and, mm. and that my husband used to come as a child there to, you know, play with his, his grandma and he's got those memories as well. So it's a nice sort of continuation of the, the family, really. Mm. I never regretted going down there. It was a very good job, good pay. And it was a personally, like I say, it was only for the conscientious workers. So the conditions were good? Well, I think so, yeah. So, on the whole, you enjoyed your days? At oh, yeah. oh, yeah, I enjoyed every minute of it. And I worked. And I worked long hours, but it didn't make no difference. The longer you work, the more pay you got. Can you tell me something about the... Um work that you did? Well, that's what I said. I was the, I was the assistant baker. And I would say it uh, used to start at 7 o'clock in the morning, finished at 6 at night because the job entailed those hours, you see. Then every other every other, uh, every other, other week, Saturdays and Sundays, I used to have to go in at 4 o'clock in the morning to bake the rolls and the cakes and things like that. And then, you know, carry on with the canteen work, mobile service of food, etc., etc. But like I say, I enjoyed every minute simply because there was such a vast difference between that kind of job and the bacon that I was in because I was on night work for 18, no, 15 years, continuing night work in the bacon trade. And that wasn't work, that was slavery. See, so I enjoyed it and I appreciated it. That's all I can say about that, that's the of it. I've only been here a couple of years, but we moved into uh, Nightingale Valley. All the cottages down there used to be sort of uh, railway cottages that serves the, the railway. And um, we found out that the bottom of our garden was like a pilgrim's path that went all the way up to um, a famous shrine at the time. We got it because we found a piece of land on there to build a house. But I'm really glad we moved there because it feels like the first place I've lived in a long time where I, I know a lot of people locally and it feels like it, it's my own place. Um, can you tell me anything about 
what it was actually like on the factory floor. I think, I think that the the worst job of all was on the on the machines that were producing the the, the board itself. Uh, like I say, you take for instance when the machines were running all right. Like I say, it was quite easy. You know, the men, like I say, you had that done all anywhere. But if they had a break, see, if the camera broke, so see, then it was panic stations. Everyone had to be dropped to get that paper rolling in the game because of loss of production. And for how do you what like hell, you see? Other than that, like I say, they used a tremendous amount of water for cleaning down and the making of the board, you see. So oh, I think that machines were the worst off. What were the conditions like in the factory? Well, they weren't the worst in a lot of other places. Do you know what I mean? They, they, oh, that's why a lot, of, a lot of them, you know, a lot of them, but, you know, they stuck their jobs, you know, for year after year after year. And like I say, they're the times like better being on the door. And like I say, there's you take butlers, for instance. Like I say, conditions down there were terrible at one time, see? In fact, we used to have a lot of butlers and try to get in the board mills for that particular reason, you know. So, like I say, that's the way we're thinking that anybody who worked for the board mills done very well. St Anne's House was run as a shelter for the homeless by the charity St Mungo's from November 2018 until the COVID-19 pandemic meant that the accommodation was no longer suitable. While open, it contained 30 beds for the homeless and provided other services and support for shelter users. Before the shelter opened, there was some opposition to the plan, with local residents raising concerns around antisocial behaviour and drug abuse. My wife and I moved here from France, my wife's French, uh, five years ago. And that was just at the time when this centre here was being uh, designated as a, a refuge for homeless people. And that was our first introduction to St Anne's. We came to the meeting, which was absolutely chaotic. It was terrible. I was quite surprised, I was quite shocked. <laughs> people had a very, very negative attitude to homeless people in their area. They thought they were very dangerous, their children were in danger and all the rest of it. No matter how much people tried to assure them that it was only a temporary thing, it was only during the winter, most of the people were working anyway, and so on. The drugs weren't involved. Um, it didn't make any difference. Uh, it, it just finished up as a shouting match. But fortunately, it succeeded as a centre, and it continued, and there was never anything said about the place afterwards. The big advantage, the big plus for living around here, is that people are very friendly. Bristolians are super friendly. Uh, I'm originally from Manchester, so I know what uh, the northern community spirit was like. That was a long, long time ago. And uh, coming back to Bristol, I find that it's very similar, in fact, extremely uh, friendly and relaxed. I like it. And it's multinational, unbelievably multinational. You hear so many languages spoken in the street, and they get on. We don't see much conflict between different communities. This is a, a very positive thing. I, be, I believe in some schools they have hundreds of languages spoken, you know, and uh, I'm happy to be here, yeah. yeah. Would you say that that's true for St Anne's as well as for Bristol generally? Yeah, definitely, yeah. 
As part of the Gather St Anne's project, there was an exhibition of photographs at St Anne's house taken in the area over the years. The board mill was heavily featured and one of the photographs donated by a local resident showed a little boy standing next to building site machinery during the demolition of the mill buildings in the early 80s. My name's Rich Clark and when I was a kid I was interested in anything mechanical, diggers, cranes, all that sort of stuff. And um, my granddad, uh, was a guy called Reg Clark, he would drive me all over Bristol taking photos of, of diggers. Um, and in those days, you could just walk into a building site. You could just sit in a digger. There was no security. There was no high-vis, people in high-vis jackets. It was, you could just walk into a building site, sit in the digger. And at the time, obviously, this would have been the early 80s, uh, St. Anne's Board Mills had uh, not long closed. And um, this was one of the places that he would take me to. Uh, obviously, these photos that are part of the exhibition were obviously taken um, at the, the then derelict board mills. It would have been 1982, 83, that sort of time. But yeah, I mean, basically what happened was, is I mean, Reg, Reg, Reg was a, he was a wonderful granddad to me. He was a very charming man. Um, he was sort of larger than life character. And um, as I said, at the time he would have not long retired. And he basically, he, he said to me, he said, you know, we would get in his yellow Ford Cortina and um, he, he would drive me all over, all over Bristol. And um, I just remember these sort of huge red brick buildings and you know just broken windows and um i mean where i'm stood on these photos is would be where the um the avon valley business park is now but what happened with the photos is that um when reg died he died in 2006 um and then my nan went into a home not long after and my mum and dad were clearing out his house and um they found this box of negatives so I took them to a place in Bowen Street, Photographique, and I said, you know, can you put them on a, digitise them, put them on a disc for me? And it was wonderful to bring back all these memories that I'd completely sort of forgotten about. But I've got two children, two little girls, and my youngest one in particular, she's only, uh, she's only three, she's nearly four. She seems to have inherited the uh, sort of the bug for diggers. Uh, across the road from our, our house, there's a, a building site, they're building new houses, and. Uh, so she seems to be sort of interested in it, just like I was. So uh, that's nice anyway. <laughs> um, did many women work for the board now? Oh, yes, yeah, they were. Not so much after the war, because, like I say, the women have got phased out. But we had a lot of the women in the packing room. It was mostly the women that were in the packing, see, you know, the counterboards, you know, and uh, things like that, see. But uh, outside of that, about the office staff and the canteen staff, and few women working as labourers, well, they couldn't do it, you see. Well, they may have done it during the warriors, but they wouldn't have done it during the warriors. But like I say, that uh, women had a lot of jobs in the war, see. I suppose they may have had something in the mill, I don't know. But gradually, like I say, they were phased out if they did, rather. And it was only the women in the pattern room, uh, like I say, the canteen. So, an office girls, you know. So, so the actual production in the boardroom was hard work? Oh, yes, it was hard work, oh yes, but then men accepted it, it was as simple as that, because it, it, it wasn't no worse than, it wasn't no worse than a lot of other firms, you see, and of course, like I say, over the years, you see, the unions crept in and improved a lot of the working man, you see, because like I say, as I say, I'm 77, and I'm going back 
to my boy Dave when I could see some of the when I could see some of the sights in old Bristol. You take the tannery that used to be down in um, Red Cross Street there. Uh, that I don't know why they're still there. <laughs> I haven't been there in town for years. I've seen some of the chaps come from the tannery pushing those steaming hoys, you know, and they're singing that. Sinners rakes, you know, out through the streets, you know. And that was that was the type of work in those days, you know, that uh, gradually it improved. And like I say, and then when they started, when Headley started up the, uh, up the board mills as such, you see, he was taken over by the Imperial, and like I say, gradually things began to get better and better. And, uh, Formulas went out of existence, and like I say, I'm not about that. If I wanted to, you see, but I'd better not. You see, I've got my own opinions about that. You see, why is Formulas went out of existence? If it was in the interest of the government to keep the board trade going, they could have they could have subsidised the board mills. I think, you see, but they, I don't know why they allow them to to go out. You know, like they do do. Uh, I've moved here to St Anne's 29 years ago. So when I was offered a council house there, the housing officer took me inside and it was a complete mess. Um, I knew it was a real complete mess. He was embarrassed and kept apologising, saying that they should have sorted it out. And you know, and, But I looked out the back garden and saw Troopers Hill and that just swung it and I just said, I'll take it, thank you. As um, so we moved in and the garden hadn't been cultivated for 25 years, and it took two council trucks to take the mattresses, the bikes, the safe and the other things we found in the back garden. Um, and all a great crowd of neighbours came out when we were moving in and we just didn't understand why. Um, they were watching us in the street and it was because we were the first black family on the road. And, um, and at that time, I had three children. Um, nobody else was like us there. So what have I seen, the changes? Lots of diversity, um, really nice to see that. Uh, lots of new families moving in, changing things up. And I think St Anne's house is the epitome of that because this would not have happened 10 years ago. It wouldn't have happened. So you're very welcome. I hope you stay. <laughs> in addition to finding the archive recordings of board mill workers, we were lucky enough to meet a former mill employee in person at St Anne's house. Morris was at first reluctant to be recorded, but thanks to the encouragement of his neighbours, he agreed to talk on microphone and gave us some great insights about working at the mill through the war years until the mill's closure in 1980. My name is Morris Francis. I worked at St Anne's Board Mills for near enough 40 years until it closed down. I worked in the Board Mill Coaching Department and once during the war, it was at the time that they bombed Bath. They dropped two bombs into the coaching department when it exploded and caused quite a lot of damage. The other one, even though it had come through a concrete roof, jammed into some machinery and didn't explode. The army bomb disposal people came and took it away. Because of the shortage of uh, pulping materials, the board mill organized a waste paper collection 
and provided Hessian sacks for this paper to be collected in from houses and businesses. Later in the war, um, again because of the shortage of pork, they started using straw, but the straw had to be sort of cooked to make it suitable material for pulping. And it used to be kept in a field along the river and they used to keep security on there 24 hours a day so nobody set fire to it. Talking about setting fire, they had their own fire brigade at St. Anne's War Mills. After the war finished, there was a big oil fire at Abenmouth and even though St. Anne's Bournemouth's Fire Brigade was privately owned, that took part in trying to quench the flames down there. They had a, a land fire brigade uh, engine, and they also had a fire boat. Hello. What's your name? Frida. Frida. And do you live around here? Yeah. Excellent. And do you like it around here? Yeah. It's nice, isn't it? What's your favourite thing about here? The park. Yeah. The park. Is it St Anne's Park? Yeah. And are there swings in the park? Yeah. Of course. It's the best, isn't it? Yeah. We moved down in 79, came from London, and moved into Trelawney Park. And, um, just then, it was a completely different area to what it is now. But the shops as well, Sandy Park was an amazing shopping centre because there was just almost everything you could wish for. Um, there, was, there was a toy shop, there was Owen Williams, which was a kind of posh hardware shop. I mean, it sold sort of um, screws in plastic bags. And uh, the other side of the road, there was a model shop called, I think it was called something ridiculous like Bailey's Dailies or something. <laughs> I can't remember, but something like that. And um, there was a hi-fi shop, which was good because on the other side of the road, I think it was called Tudor Records, and there was a record shop. On the left-hand side, there was a haberdashery drapery store with, um, with wooden-fronted little drawers that you could pull out. It's a bit like um, Grace Brothers, you know, are you being served? And it was really, really nice. You could get things like um, wool and um, vests, <laughs> children's stuff. Um, it was really nice to go in there and, and, you know, you were stepping into the 1940s, really. Um, and then there was the um, health food shop. And that was just health food shop like you still get you know and it had that same smell that health food shops still have I have no idea what that is but <laughs> when did you notice it start to change Sainsbury's can't remember what year it was but when Sainsbury's came then the fruit and veg shops closed the fish shop um, and it was just it was a disaster for the area but I'm, I'm really pleased that at the moment it seems to be fighting back. Uh, right, Mr Nichols. first of all, can, can I ask you where you worked? Yeah, St Anne's Board Mill. And what year was that you started? 1932. And when did you finish? 1975. Right, can 
Can I ask you what the conditions were like in those days? Well, yes, I, I, I had um, got a few thoughts together. When I started in 1932, the, I started there as a counter boy, mm. and um, we used to start work in those days at half past seven in the morning, mm. and then go to breakfast at half past eight mm. until nine. That was a full breakfast, wasn't it? Yes, if you wanted. We had to pay for it, of course. Well, I think egg and bacon in those days was about tuppence halfpenny, so old money. So it's pretty cheap. Oh, yeah. Well, mm. not really, because wages at that time was about two pounds per week. Oh, right. So, mm. you know, yeah. in comparison. But even so, that was half past eight until nine, and then we worked until one, one till two for lunch, and from then on until half past five at night. That was the normal working day. So on Saturday, so. And Saturday would be from half past seven till one. Mm. And off times, conditions were such, there were no unions in those days, mm. and conditions were such that it would be nothing to come along at just before one o'clock, mm. as you were perhaps on the clock, waiting the clock out and say, oh, work till four today. Mm. And you had to do it. There was no question of, um, mm. no, I won't. You had to. What, what was the relationship like between the workers and the management? There was one particular manager there who was what we might term a devil. And, and um, he, would, he would do things which a manager these days wouldn't dare do. Mm. Mm. Dictatorial methods. Yeah. He wouldn't dare do because of unions today, but there wasn't at that time. Can you, but can you explain well, some of the things he might have done? Uh, yes, you weren't allowed to speak, to have conversation mm. without he was on you, mm. and um, things of this sort. You went in fear of this man. Yeah. Mm. But this was the general attitude with management of those days, and they were dictatorial. There was always a queue of people outside the works waiting for a job, so that you know if you um, if you went out, someone else would be in, and, and that was the fear. And what about the holidays? How long were the holidays? Holidays was just one week. Just one week. Just one week. At yeah, one one week a year. And I do recall on one occasion after I had moved from the packing department to um, to the manufacturing set up. We were do I was on a, a night, sh night shift on a Friday night when we had a very, very bad run and there was an awful lot of waste board to be cleared. Mm. And two or three of us had arranged to go away for a week's holiday and we had to catch the coach from Prince Street at nine o'clock in the morning and remember we were still working until six. Mm. And we left the job, I think, perhaps half past seven or something like that, just in time to rush home and get to the coach station. And when we returned the following week, we were almost sacked because we had done that. Mm. Just one week's holiday. I've been living in St. Anne's since 2002. I fell in love with this place. Um, my husband, he's a fisherman, so he loves fishing and is a member of the fishing committee. So they're responsible for the walk down by the, the river, keeping that area nice and tidy. And I travel down from the co-op, heading down to where I live, which is down at the bottom, and see all the houses. It always makes me smile. It always makes me feel like, yeah, I'm home. I've lived in quite a lot of different places. I've lived in 
France, yeah. on and off so in Jamaica and London. But every single place has got its own unique feel. But St. Anne's, it's got really, it's got a home feel to it. And it's very safe. What do you think gives it that feeling of home, homeliness, if you like? The houses, I suppose, they look like dollhouses, I always think. And there's lots of dog walkers. Mm. And I think people who walk their dogs are always friendly. And there's quite a few fishermen. Mm. So my husband can literally walk out the door down to the river. So he's happy. And it's just beautiful. But feng shui-wise, to live by water is really good. It gives you lots of freshness and energy. And, and the people that live, obviously, are drawn to that sort of place. So they bring an energy to it. And during the, the lockdown, when we were clapping, and that was like the first time we were seeing people again, and you could hear the sound coming up over the hill and down into the valley like a wave of all this appreciation. It was just such a lovely feeling. Was that, that was really a, a, a very welcome part of um, being in our community. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more about Bricks Public Art Producing or any of the other works we do, please do visit bricksbristol.org or follow us for updates on all the usual social channels. To be the first to hear when we release new podcast episodes, be sure to subscribe on our feed. And if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to leave us a review. This episode was produced by Rowan Bishop, with thanks to Lee at Mshed for providing the archive material and to all the local residents who contributed their stories.